welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm still away with the rest of the radio team, but this week we're excited to have another panel that LARB presented this summer at the second annual Lit Lit or Little Literary Fair. Lit Lit took place at Hauser & Worth Gallery in downtown LA in partnership with Hauser & Worth, and it brought together 48 small presses and literary arts organizations and over 5,000 visitors for a two-day celebration of independent publishing on the West Coast. If you're interested, all five panel discussions from the weekend are available to watch back for free on litlit.org. Today, you'll hear one of those conversations, and it's called For the Love of Print. Editors of the LARB Quarterly, Chloe Watlington and Michelle Chihara, join Jeff Weiss of The Land and local designer and near-futurist writer Chessa Garbett to discuss the love and labor of print magazines, designing for print, and ongoing debates around the relevance of literary criticism and production today. So enjoy, and we'll be back next week. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the For the Love of Print panel. Thank you so much for joining us at this last panel of the Lit Lit Festival. It's our second annual Lit Lit. Our first annual was in 2019. Whatever happened between 2019 and 2022, <laughs> we are not counting it. We're really pleased to have welcomed so many of you and so many amazing small presses and magazines from Los Angeles and all over the West Coast in this two-day celebration of the real vibrancy of cultural production on the West Coast. Before we get started, since this is the last panel, I really wanted to thank all of the wonderful people at Hauser & Worth Galleries who've worked so hard to put on this beautiful event and this gorgeous space for us. So thank you to all of them. I also, I also wanted to thank the Los Angeles Review of Books Executive Director, Irene Yoon, um, who... And most importantly, the person who's really responsible for these two days is Kelly Payton. <laughs> so, Kelly, Kelly, you're amazing and has you know, invited so many incredible, incredible writers and, and producers of books and magazines to these two days. So before I turn the microphone over to Chloe, who's going to moderate this panel, I wanted to tell you how LitLit Lit came about. So LitLit Lit was really born before 2019 as part of the publishing workshop which is LARB's educational program that happens every summer. We just concluded our sixth annual publishing workshop. And it is a program for people of all ages, from recent college graduates to graduate students to mid-career professionals who are passionate about publishing and want to know how it works. How do I get a job in publishing? How do I start my own magazine? How do I start my own press? And so we bring together people from all over the country and now all around the world and introduce them to people in different roles in publishing, from editors to creative directors. And we really dive into the nuts and bolts of how to run a press, how to start a magazine, and all of the things that go into the many different jobs that it takes to create a magazine or a book. And as part of this, at the end, we'd always bring together some presses and magazines in Los Angeles to meet the fellows. And we brought them all together, realized what an incredible wealth of cultural production there is in Los Angeles. And it's so rare that everyone is together in the same space. And so we decided, wouldn't it be wonderful to open this up to the public so that people could come and see the amazing things that are happening in literary Los Angeles. And so that's how Lit Lit came about. And we're really pleased that it has been such a success this weekend. And we hope that it can become a tradition and everyone can come back in the future. So I'd now like to... I'd now like to introduce my colleague, Chloe Watlingen, who is the managing editor of the Los Angeles Review Books and the Quarterly Journal. If you stop by our booth, you'll see our second issue of the relaunched Quarterly Journal, which is really beautiful and is really the work of Chloe. So Chloe, I'm going to hand it over to you. Thanks, Lindsay. And yes, many thanks to Kelly for organizing this weekend. It's been just beautiful. So I wanted to just introduce each of the panelists, but I have to read it off my phone because they're over-accomplished LA writers, so excuse me. Michelle Kihara is the Associate Dean and Director of the Whittier Scholars Program at Whittier College. There she teaches media studies, contemporary American literature, and creative writing. She's currently working on a book 
tentatively titled Behave, Economics and the Science of Influence in American Pop Culture. She has had recent publications in Distinction, a journal of social theory and postmodern culture, American literary history, Post 45, and forthcoming chapters and volumes from Bloomsbury and Cambridge University Press. She also co-edited the Reutledge Companion to Literature and Economics in 2018. And most importantly for me, she's a contributing editor to the LARB Quarterly, as well as the section editor for Capital and Culture for the Los Angeles Review Books website. And she's also a frequent contributor there. Before taking on this career in academia at Whittier College, she was a accomplished reporter, editor, and freelance writer, including being a staff writer at both the New Haven Advocate and the Boston Phoenix. She's been an online editor at an investigative news magazine, Mother Jones. She has published fiction, nonfiction, reportage, and essays in a variety of publications online and off, including yeah. N plus one, Bloomberg, Avidly. What's really cool is she was also in the Best American Non-Required Reading of 2014 Notable List and the California Prose Directory of 2014. So that's Michelle. Next to Michelle, I have Shesta Garbutt, who designed all the beautiful promotional materials of this weekend. All the stanchion signs, all the social media, the program, the flyers, the sandwich board, everything was the work of their creative design studio called Firebrand, at which they are the founder. And it's a design studio that creates branding and websites for mission-driven organizations such as LARB, Mindfulness for the People, Harvard University School of Public Health, and Arbor Arts. They have spoken at organizations like Meta, IDEO, and SF Design Week on topics of diversity in design education and decolonizing our creative practices. They are currently working on a forthcoming anthology of queer and BIPOC near-futurist art and writing called Time and Its Travelers. So hopefully we'll hear more about that in a minute. And Jeff here at the end. Jeff is the founder of the last rap blog. Is that like last, like on the internet? The last? They're all dead. They're all dead. Okay. They're all gone. I, you yeah. heard it here, people. This I poisoned is, them. This, this is the last standing rap blogger, so pay heed. Okay. And also, not only that, but it's a label, POW Recordings. He is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of The Land magazine, which has been giving out free copies all weekend. And you can find them over there in the corner as well as a regular freelancer for the Washington Post, Los Angeles Magazine, and The Ringer. He's currently working on his first book, Waiting for Britney Spears. So I'm really excited to just get to speaking with the panelists and also because this is the last panel at Lit Lit to having whatever kind of Q&A everyone wants to have, get all our questions in that we've been dying to ask all weekend. But first, I just want to explain a little bit about the panel, the idea behind the panel, and why we came here to talk about our print magazines and our creative work in the print industry. And I know for me, at least, this idea started when I read an article last summer in a literary magazine in a state far away, in a city far away, Brooklyn, New York, that asked the question, what's up with the book review? And the article had cast a kind of familiar cast of characters to answer this question. There was someone on Twitter. There was a failed academic. There was a anti-tanky Marxist who reads his Freud. And there was a novelist. And then there was a reader of all these things who was really upset about something called the contemporary-themed review that instead of reviewing a book, it smashes together all the most popular books into one review so that they can hit all the big five publishers and be noticed. And the article kind of went through how anxious it has become to write a book review because should we be critical and not be able to get a job or should we be too good and then have Twitter be mean to us because we're not being critical enough? And I was just reading this and it's, it's interesting. It's a great article but I just really felt like it didn't speak to what we do in Los Angeles or our experience in Los Angeles as writers 
in the literary field or in investigative journalism. I think Los Angeles has a particular way of being a failed city in that it's like failed its inhabitants and it's also a failed economic project. Any architectural book kind of starts out with saying like, wow, it's so crazy having to write about a failed city. And I think like when we step outside of our doors every day, we experience the intense homelessness, the intense heat, intense corruption. And it's also a city that unlike New York or unlike the empire of the United States, we don't have to pretend it's the greatest. No one says LA the greatest city in the world. So in that way, we get to love it because it's like our little underdog city that we just love. And so we write to it, we write for it, and we criticize it. We just have a different way of approaching literature. And something you said once in an interview I really like is that all literature in L.A. is noir, or at least noir adjacent or (laughs) noir aware. And so I want to just start there and just kind of like have each of you kind of autobiographically speak about your print projects and about what it means to you to write from L.A., starting with Michelle. Such a big question. So my notes here are in my bullet journal, and I have a a chapter coming out in a book this fall called New Directions in Print Studies. That's about bullet journals. So one of the things I've been thinking about, and I swear I'll bring this back around to L.A., but And what I'm thinking about in the chapter is a lot of print sales, a lot of the print industry has come to be driven by what they call adult creativity and bullet journaling or something like it, right? A lot of paper products are being sold in a, it goes into the lifestyle market. Independent bookstores before the pandemic were doing quite well selling print products, but with pictures of the books being sold on Instagram, right? So the print and digital markets are intertwined in these different ways, but print has become part of what they call digital detox. And I think for so many of us, print is part of digital detox. It's a kind of a type of attention and a type of experience that you have when you're with a print book that you don't necessarily have online. Online is still distraction. And what we read at large, LARB articles can be quite long, (laughs) but the way we find them is often through social media. A lot of the front page of LARB is your front page. So I was thinking about the role that print plays, and the article is really kind of about the political economy of bullet journals. But when I was writing the chapter, I was thinking a lot about the role that LARB has played in my life. And the moment that I always think about when I think about the LA Review of Books is the moment in 2016 when a bunch of us editors and writers gathered at Skylight after the election to just kind of process what was happening. It was a lot of queer folks and people of color and and a lot of writers. And we all went to Skylight because that was our space. It wasn't just the space of print sales. It was the space of print community. And... I'm the granddaughter of immigrants, Japanese immigrants on my dad's side. My dad was interned during the war, and I wrote an essay for that moment at Skylight about my neighbors at the time who were leaning Trump, but who had told me that they had farmed the farm, that their family had farmed the farm of their Japanese neighbors during the war and then given it back to them after the war. And the essay is meditating on my relationship with this family who were leaning conservative, they were evangelical Christians, and yet we had a lot in common. And I didn't have the guts while they still lived next to me to talk to them about this stuff. But I wrote the essay kind of to them, (laughs) kind of hoping that they might read it and talk to me about it. They never did. But I was thinking about what it means to be neighbors, what it means to write letters for your neighbors under times of duress, and to come together with people when, when you have shared values. I think that the internet is very powerful at creating new cultures and new communities around shared values. We can find people who read the same medium essays that we read on the line in a way that we couldn't necessarily before through print culture. It was harder, it took longer. At the same time that I still think we need the digital detox that print provides. We need the attention the ability to be alone so that when we're together, we can really be present together. And the LA Review of Books has really provided me with an intellectual community, with an ability to find writers that I wouldn't otherwise find just in my academic life. In fact, a lot of my academic life 
cuts through the LA Review and it's hard to separate them. So that's all a long way of saying that I'd really love to hear what you who are here today think about and want to talk about, about print culture and what it means to you and what the city of LA means to you. And I also just want to take a moment to thank everyone for being here on a hot and somewhat muggy Sunday, but it is really powerful to be in person with people. So thank you for coming and I'll pass it on. I think for me, so I was born in Los Angeles and where I started my design studio, this is where I went to art school. And I started out sort of in the fine arts space and then moved into graphic design because I was like, this is how I can do art every day and also pay my bills. Mm -hmm. um, it's very practical. But I've sort of, in the past couple of years, spending time by myself in quarantine, come back to what are the things that I want to make? What can I do with my free time at home? What I've come back to is illustration and print design, writing, and these pieces that I want to share in the, in the printed space. Prior to COVID, I had just started sort of on my journey with Rizograph printing, which my Rizograph teacher, Natalie Center, has described as a cross between screen printing and like spot color and a Xerox machine. It's really fun to work with. And it's given me a chance to sort of get back into physical design, physical object making, whereas most of my work is sort of in the digital space and in the website design space. So in terms of how that relates to Los Angeles, it's been really cool to get to know the city through its risograph machines and through the people that, that take care of them and that print with them. And it's given me a chance to sort of explore different pockets. The USC MFA building over here in the arts district, they have their Rizzo machine. And it was amazing to go there and do prototypes and try out pieces of my font things that I do. More recently, I've been working on the QT BIPOC anthology of sci-fi writing that Chloe had mentioned. And for me, Los Angeles, also, like I said, is a little bit of a dystopia. I, I grew up here and I say that with kind of a lot of love. I think <laughs> driving down the various freeways and highways to me feels a lot like space travel, especially at night. Coming across these huge sky rises and these large light installations knowing that things like Blade Runner took place here and Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower take place in Southern California. All of that to me speaks to the ways that Los Angeles is sort of living in the future, especially compared to other parts of the country or other parts of the world. We're always at the forefront of trends, whether it's matcha or the newest style or what's the matcha of 2022? It's a good question. Uh, somebody asked me. Chagachinos, yeah. Um, we're always at the forefront of those things. And then I'll like go visit my sister in Pittsburgh and they're like, oh my God, we're obsessed with acai. <laughs> so I think LA in an interesting way is a bit of, of time travel into the future. And with my own writing, I'm thinking a lot about how things are accelerating so quickly sort of in history and the way that society is changing the way that the planet is changing and how young people are going to sort of respond to that and the questions that we have to answer, especially as queer folks, especially as people that are racially diverse, living in a city center that's very dense. So that's where I'm at with print design. I, I'm so interested in printed materials and printing out my stories and the stories of the other people in this anthology because I think digital can be so transient and fast moving and really so sort of dense that to publish something as a blog doesn't actually feel as kind of longstanding or as honoring of the content as making a book that people can pass on or that they can add to their libraries and sort of add to their physical legacy. So that's why I love print design. I'm gonna pass it to Jeff. Thank you, that was great. So in regards to print, I was never really sold on the whole internet thing. <laughs> I don't think I still am sold on the internet thing, but I guess I'm kind of a, I'm like an insufferably sanctimonious and kind of self-righteous freak, but I'm kind of 
romantic, I guess, in the core where, I don't know, I, to me, like, there's something kind of uninspiring about, like, reading an article online. Obviously, I've written most of the stuff I've done online, but there's always been kind of a magic to holding something in your hands. And I think that kind of goes across all forms of analog media, you know, like a record. I'd rather, I feel like Spotify has sort of, music was already kind of dying, but Spotify definitely was a good final blow. You know, in terms of print, you know, I started writing for the LA Times and the LA Weekly. I wrote for the LA Weekly for a million years, which I guess sort of segued into the print endeavor of the land that I do with um, my partner, Evan Solano, who's somewhere back there. He's a brilliant creative design director. Basically what happened was in 20, I think it was 2018, the LA Weekly got bought by a bunch of like weird right-wing Nazis who shut down the paper and it was like very Trump era and they just kind of crushed it into dust, fired everyone. And um, I was appalled. I'm born and raised in LA. My grandparents are from LA. I don't really know anything else. I have the worst vocal fry and I say like too much. It's horrible. <laughs> what can you do? My mom's from Encino, you know? <laughs> Some things just get passed down. And so as a sanctimonious self-righteous streak, I was up in arms because I think that if you have LA in your name, you sort of have an obligation to the residents of the city itself to kind of live up to the ideals that at least the city hopes to live up to. I tend to be kind of a jingoist about LA at times, even though there are so many different problems. I feel like every issue of the magazine is dedicated to the disaster that's becoming. But at the same time, I feel about LA like you know, when someone says something negative about your family, you're like, how dare you? Only I can say horrible things about my family. And yeah, so I, of course, have had a total contempt for New York most of my life because I think LA, LA is complicated. Every place is complicated. You know, like you can go across America and the problems inherent in LA, basically you're manifesting in almost every major American city. It's, it, they're not unique to it, but LA obviously has such a singularity. So basically these different ideas, we did this whole boycott against LA Weekly, which was, um, you know, just based on the idea that people shouldn't be able to do this. They shouldn't be able to buy a publication, destroy it, fire everybody, and kind of turn into a zombie publication, which unfortunately has become a trend that's endemic across all media. You know, I can't even tell you, like, I have a wall of cover stories that I did, and, like, I think 80% of the magazines no longer exist, but they all have these, like, weird ghost websites where they're, like, trying to sell you keychains. It's like Playboy magazine. It's, like, literally exists to sell keychains at this point, and, like, weird exotic vacations in, like, Aruba. I wouldn't recommend those. <laughs> I didn't go, but First hand. yeah, <laughs> don't even start in the next LA Review of Books. <laughs> and basically, we put out four issues of this magazine, including a zine. It's been probably the most rewarding thing in my professional career. Also, the most mania-inducing, disastrous experience, which I would trade for nothing else. It, uh, the tagline is "Buy locals for locals." Myself and the partners I founded it with, we were all from LA. And we wanted to create a publication. You know, I, I also have a deep, unabiding resentment for the fact that a lot of publications, like historically in Los Angeles, especially in print media, they will just import people from other cities and then be like, this is your new editor. And you're like, you've lived in L.A. for four days. And then they'll start telling you how L.A. is. Nothing against them. There's some, obviously, some of the most brilliant people. But I'm a big believer in, like, you have to kind of, like, I couldn't go to another city and tell you and like that's always been the thing that's frustrating me. That's like why E. Babbitts is like one of my favorite writers ever for LA, because I always think about her Day of the Locust essay where she, you know, I love Day of the Locust. It is one of the best books ever written. But I just loved how she was like, well, of course, you know, of course, all the New Yorkers liked it because it says, you know, LA is this monstrous, you know, these ogres, you know, these dumb yokels burning down Hollywood Boulevard. And there's just so many different sides to LA, and that's kind of, I guess, one of the other things about the land is LA is a very block by block city. You know, I've one of the best things I got to do with Daily Weekly when I was there was I had a column. It was called Bizarre Ride. And the whole concept was that I would, it was a bizarre ride. Like one week I'd be in Compton. The next week I'd be in like Topanga Canyon. The next week I'd be in Mid-City. You know, it, like the next week you'd be in Chatsworth. And you'd go all over the city and I'd interview musicians and restaurateurs and athletes and different people that had this intersection in LA. And you realize kind of the three-dimensionality of the city. And I think that's something that often gets lost because without print media, there's a certain serendipity, I think, to print media. And that's, I guess, the other thing I would like to touch on. You know, I, I feel like the last person that still has a print subscription in the LA Times, hopefully more people do because I think we need like print publications. But I love reading it every day because you will stumble across something. It's like why LA Review Books having a quarterly is really important. Hopefully someone would say the same thing about us because when you're online, you kind of just, your brain gets siloed to the things you're already interested in. And I think the magic of print media and just life in general is kind of the unexpected. And I guess the best thing is just when you're surprised. 
And I think print media is able to kind of like incubate that idea. And it's still, you know, it's, we've had print media for 600 years and no matter what, whether it's online websites or TikTok or Instagram, it just can't be replicated by the feeling of just discovering something. And I think your brain processes a different way. And we've kind of evolved in that way. And for the rest of my life, I'll probably be, you know, tilting at windmills to make sure that it, in my tiny little corner of the world, I can kind of help it, you know, stay alive. The other part of this Eve Babbitt's quote that you always point out is how she says, I hate how he calls it a wasteland. And that's kind of where the name came from, right? The land, it's like the land without the waste part. Yeah. Well, actually, a lot of rappers were calling it like the land. And then I was kind of just like, oh, yeah. But yeah, it's sort of the one thing. Although a lot of people call it the LA land. And I'm like, ugh. <laughs> it's not the LA land. The La La Land. Yeah, I was like, no, yeah, because they're like, yeah, I love your publication, The La La Land. It's, like, it's so cool how it mixes like music and word, <laughs> spoken word. Yeah, but I'm hearing from everyone this kind of like, you know, this dichotomy of the wasteland, the land, the dystopian, the utopian. And I think one of the things that we can address here, because we are dealing with like such an exaggerated form of the crisis, of is that. On the flip side of that, we can have a kind of positive vision or kind of, even if it's a fantasy, at least, like where there's a dystopian, there's utopian speculation. So I don't know if you guys could kind of like riff on like how your print projects or how you bring like, because this is also a very LA thing is like being positive, which I think is great. Like, I think a lot of like, I hate critic. Like, why would you want to be a critic? You know, why would you want to pick up a book and be like, oh, I have so much to criticize this book for? Like, they spent a lot of time working on that book. And so, like, we publish a lot of stuff in LARB that we just love, and I'm always, like, trying to write something critical, and it turns into, like, a glowing profile of someone around town <laughs> who I really think their work is cool or something. So, yeah, just, like, utopian speculation, positivity. <laughs> well, about positivity, I think I came from the world of weeklies as well, and I share that love, and I feel like the weeklies were this, they were underdog papers that loved the city, that was the brand of so many of the best weeklies. And when I worked for the Boston Phoenix, which was a great paper in, in many ways, and it is also gone, but I was born and raised in Northern California. And when I got to Boston, I was like, oh, I'm going to learn about the city. I'll read all about the city and bring an outsider's perspective. The editor-in-chief was like, don't ever say that. <laughs> Nobody wants an outsider's perspective. I was like, cool, cool. Just won't mention where I'm from. <laughs> But the first cover story that I had at the Phoenix was literally about the existence of the Brazilian community. They had the highest density or the highest population of Brazilians outside of Brazil in Framingham, Boston. Boston's a real white city. And I was like, hey, you guys, I did capoeira in my youth and I was doing capoeira with all these Brazilians. And I was like, you know, you've got like a huge Brazilian city here. And they were like, huh? <laughs> and it was literally a cover story. It was news for the Boston Phoenix, that just the Brazilian community was there. So there was a way that, the way that I tried to love Boston didn't really fit with Boston and I wasn't a good fit with Boston. And I thought about it when I came to LA and I was, here I'll tell you a Jonathan Gold story. I got to LA and I really fell in love with LA when I got here. I wanted to love this city from the moment I stepped foot in it. It's crazy, it's dystopic, but I still, I loved it. And coming from the Bay Area, that's blasphemy. People in the Bay Area are like, you what, L.A.? Like, no, I love it. Shh. <laughs> you know, what's wrong with you? And people in L.A. are totally happy to love San Francisco as well. It only goes one way, this rivalry. But I wanted, as a graduate student, I wanted to teach a class on L.A., and I was helping them establish a literary journalism major, and they let me teach a lecture class. So I had all these students, and I was all excited, and I was really nervous about representing for teaching L.A., and I wanted to have cred. And I, I wrote to Jonathan Gold and said, will you come visit my class? I'm teaching your book, Counter History, right? And he said, yes. And somebody told me, oh, he says yes all the time, but he doesn't show up. <laughs> and I was talking, I met the writer Jervie Turvalon, who's a fantastic LA writer. And Jervie heard that I had invited Jonathan Gold. And basically, I think Jonathan Gold showed up only because Jervie made him. I think Jervie drove him down, actually. Certainly <laughs> there with him. And he was 20 minutes late to the class. And I remember standing there in front of all these students. And of course, faculty had come to visit. 
vamping, right? I'm pretty sure he's going to be here. <laughs> I think he's going to come. And then he showed up and he was, I mean, Jonathan Gold in person, his work is, of course, amazing, but he's like Falstaff and the King rolled into one. And he was so fantastic. And it, I think that was the moment that I got the students to think about LA as something more than what they had thought about before. I had students in that class who'd grown up in LA. I took them on a walking tour of downtown LA. They had never been there before. They had never been downtown because they grew up in the valley. So it's a strange city, but I've really kind of come of age as a writer and an instructor, teacher in Los Angeles. And I, I can't separate my identity from it now. Even though I didn't grow up here, I'm not, I'm not a native <laughs> Angelino. But I think great cities, when you learn to love them, that's how you claim them and that's how they claim you. I don't know how the utopian vision of LA that I'm sure if you're at Lit Lit, you share in part. I don't know how it comes about, but certainly in conversation with other people who care about the city. I think for me, thinking about LA and utopia, I don't know if there's anything that is specific to Los Angeles that I can pinpoint, but maybe I'll come up with something as I talk. But I think we've spent a lot of time in media, in fiction, talking about all of the dystopic, apocalyptic potential futures that could happen to Los Angeles or could happen to the broader world, the planet. And we haven't put as much or enough energy and time into what are the utopic futures? What are our possible equitable futures? What are the futures where everybody is taken care of and we are living sort of in community with nature instead of sort of at odds with it? It's a challenge because, like you said, it's easy to be critical and it's really easy to be cynical, which is somewhere sort of in between grief and anger. But I think it's really interesting to say, what if there wasn't such a massive wealth disparity in L.A. where we have both Skid Row, where people think of sort of the those of us that have the least, and also Beverly Hills and Malibu, where people think of as these are some of the most luxurious places in the country, right? What would it look like if L.A. wasn't massively segregated? I think thinking again about the freeway system and these gradients from the coast and north to south, to me, it's very obvious that there are socioeconomic differences. What if every neighborhood had a park and had a community garden? What would that look like? How could we get there? Actually imagining the steps to get there versus the steps of like, well, when the sea levels rise, this is what neighborhood's going to die first, which is so dark, versus saying, what if we turn things around? What if we find a way to sort of live in harmony with this climate that is changing? So that's almost more of a writing prompt or a thought experiment prompt. I don't individually have the answer, but I think what makes LA so amazing and special is that we have representation of people from all over the world and people of all age groups and so many different perspectives. And that gives us a massive opportunity to, to come together and imagine together and make sure that sort of everybody has a voice in deciding what the future looks like. So that's sort of my, my answer, non-answer, kind of a prompt for everyone. You're listening to a special installment of the LARB Radio Hour, featuring Chloe Watlington, Michelle Chihara, Jeff Weiss, and Chessa Garbett on The Love of Print. So I actually think it was a really astute point that you were speaking about earlier about everything is noir, kind of in LA, at least everything I've written, whether intentionally or unintentionally. I think by nature, you know, there's always going to be this like sunshine noir dialectic of LA. Like obviously from its very onset, you know, like civic boosters were trying to, you know, put advertisements like of the orange groves and like Northeastern newspapers to like, oh, come to paradise. And the thing about LA is like, it's so quick. I mean, like it doesn't obviously have like the mercurial weather patterns of another city, but like it can go, you can go from paradise to hell in like three seconds flat, it feels like, you know. And you have these like kind of swing, arrogant palm trees that are so beautiful. And of course they're imported, you know, which is classic LA. I've been thinking actually obsessively about it because the this book I'm writing, it's called Waiting for Britney Spears. And it's like a pink noir is kind of how I see it in my head. And obviously so much of LA is built on this lottery ticket notion, right? Like I'm from LA, you're from LA, you've lived here a long time. You know, it 
it's different, I think, when you're from LA, because I'll, I'll tell people, I'm like, I didn't move here to get famous. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I didn't like try to do that. I just, my grandfather came. But there are so many people. And I think that idea of fame, unfortunately or fortunately, does kind of govern a lot of the way that we perceive the city, especially because, you know, you can't ignore. I've kind of grown up my whole life kind of loathing Hollywood, like being kind of in the shadow of it and just kind of exercising kind of a healthy contempt and skepticism towards it. But it is like kind of the dream making factory of the entire Western world, if not the globe, you know, and that can be really bad. And like it's so much of what people perceive of LA is kind of litigated through, you know, as much as we love the books from LA, I feel like it's a smaller thing. Like more people understand Beverly Hills through Clueless than, you know, any kind of searing tract or, you know, but yeah, no, I've, I've been thinking a lot about it, obviously, in terms of a kind of a, you know, Britney Spears, I think is like an archetypal person that came to Hollywood and kind of, you know, she's obviously recovered, which is great. And, you know, has, but she was kind of destroyed. And there is this kind of Sodom and Gomorrah thing of, of LA that is true. But there's so many sides to LA. And I think we really focus sometimes on this like, kind of binary idea of LA because it is, there is that thing. You can't ignore like the fact that we're all, a lot of us are here because, you know, it's 85 degrees and nice every day and there's no like flash floods. But there's always kind of this precipice of an apocalyptic idea kind of looming, right? You know, it's at any given moment, you know, the sky could be clouded with like sulfuric ash and you can't breathe and run outside because there's a fire, which are only getting worse, you know or the sea will eventually rise. And there's all these things that I think make LA at least, maybe not great, but at least interesting. I think it's one of those cities where it's hard to kind of be bored. And also what I love about it, which is so different than New York, is New York sort of, you know, it reveals itself to you really, really quickly. You know, everyone thinks they know. Like people, you know, come to New York and they're like within six months, they're like, yeah, I'm a New Yorker, but people live in LA for like 40 years. And they're like, I'm from Boston, you know? (laughs) I'm like, you don't have to still like the Celtics, but you know, you can eventually switch allegiances, but they don't. And I think that's kind of one of the best things. I mean, I love noir personally. I'm such a sucker for it. Like I just reread like the long goodbye back to back because I thought it was so good. Just, you know, and I, there's just versions of it. And I think like, you know, inherent vice to me is like one of my favorite things ever, I guess, because I'm kind of like a dopey stoner, like with long hair, like (laughs) shambling through the world, trying to solve crimes that I don't really know how to solve. I'm not that optimistic about, you know, the utopia of LA, unfortunately, but I'm also, I'm very anti-fatalist. And I think it's like kind of, it's so easy in this world. And especially when you look at kind of the state of civic politics and the greed and the corruption and the fact that it is kind of, it is very dystopian when you drive around outside. I mean, if we walked in a block or two, you know, we would see like really hard things that are a very real aspect of the city. But I think that they're, um, one of the things that, does give me some kind of veiled hope about Los Angeles is it it is a place for dreamers you know I'm a naturally very delusional person and I think that has served me well people that know me probably would say otherwise but in my own head I think it has and um I think that's valuable I think like not to be the corniest man alive but once you do stop to dream then everything kind of like does fall apart and I think LA has this constantly replenished reserve of people that are just dreaming and trying to kind of constantly shape and improve and recreate the city that kind of runs counterclockwise to these kind of negative myths that surround it that have maybe some validity as well. That's all really well put. And uh, I was just thinking about how two of our LARP book club books were James Elroy's. And we were one of the only literary magazines that has a noir section. I didn't expect this to be a motif of our talk today, but it makes a lot of sense if you think about it, this connection. And yeah, Shasta, I was thinking about what you said about anger and and how L.A. kind of represents itself or speaks for itself. And actually during the George Floyd uprisings, L.A. was like just on fire for weeks. And I think 50 of the cities in L.A. County had demonstrations or riots. A quarter of the people, of all people across the country arrested, were arrested here in L.A., which means like a huge number of people came out. It also means the aggressiveness of the police, but it's also about the anger of living here, which is always constantly needing to be vented and, you know, accounted for and addressed, which does bubble up at times. And a lot of people who I've told this to are like, oh, no way, I didn't hear about any demonstrations in LA. I didn't know it was that big. But in the last year, they polled the city and 70% of LA residents said like, oh yeah, I think there's probably going to be another huge riot in a year here. So like, we know, we feel it all the time this anger, but it is a part of like living and writing from here. But since we just have a little bit more time, I thought maybe we could talk about this idea of the encounter of print, like the kind of spontaneity 
the analogs of it, the way that you kind of can't get the land unless you go to a launch party or just the way print magazine kind of shows up, you know, in a way it also does this individually for all of us. Like it shows up in our mailbox, like all wrapped up in our debt and our credit card bills and like our Medi-Cal getting canceled letters. And we just like the only colorful thing. And we're like, oh my God, there's like hope somewhere. And we can spend a day reading so much, like no other print form other than a magazine or an anthology has so many little parts where you can learn so many different things in the course of it in just a, a short of a the smallest novella. And um, that's really something that I love about magazines, how they surprise you constantly and how they can teach you so much in so little time and so little pages. So if any of you just want to riff on that encounter of print or community projects, I also really want you to talk more about time and its travelers in our last minutes too. Yeah, let's do it. I think my hope, my genuine hope for this anthology and any other volumes of it that might come in the future is that it's a time capsule, right? So the themes of the anthology are all around time. I ask people to make art or do writing around time and like speculative futures. And I would sort of love for somebody, and it's all near futurism, which is thinking about the next 20 to 50 years of science fiction writing. So I think a lot of sci-fi writing is like in 2000 years, blah, blah. And you're like that literally anything can happen in 2000 years. <laughs> Everything can change and the history can repeat itself in another cycle. But I think specifically giving people the prompt of 20 to 50 years, what would that look like? That forces us to kind of think about in our own lifetimes how is the world going to change or how are we going to shape change in the world? And I think my hope is for print design or for this sort of printed anthology that somebody would find this time capsule in 35 years when the internet is like not even a word that we use anymore. And people are like, grandma, what is the internet? I would hope that books would still be around and that somebody that might find this in another person's, in an archaeological site, ideally no, ideally in a library or something like that. And they would see what people thought about the near future in 2020 or in 2022. And I think there is kind of a serendipity in that and a poetry to that to be able to do this really sort of close quarters look back and forth between these different decades. Yeah, so many of the submissions to the anthology were things that I didn't expect, and that's why I wanted it to be a collection of different people's writing, because it's amazing to kind of see how people view where we're at now and where that could possibly take us, and to be able to hold something and flip through it and think about a book as an element of time, as like a timeline that you move through as you're flipping through the pages, has been a really interesting sort of design journey for me as well, thinking about how do we curate and bring together all of these different pieces of content from different writers and artists and make it feel cohesive enough to be an anthology, but surprising enough that you're sort of taken through these moods and moved through these different sort of meta stories based on this overarching theme of the book. Yeah, I think that notion of an artifact of like a curio of like kind of this like time capsule is such a powerful thing, especially in a world that's obviously so devoted to the ephemeral. I mean, the internet is basically just, it's always the craziest thing to me when like some kind of catastrophe happens and then like someone will be tweeting about the catastrophe and then someone will tell like talking about like this video they liked and someone will just be complaining about their boss at work. And it's like, your brain is just like now like indexing these things. And like the print is like the opposite of that, right? It's like, you have to like be, and obviously there's like this whole cult and people are making millions of dollars about being present, but it's a very important idea. And I think print forces you to be present. I'm just going to regale, hopefully not too long, this little anecdote about the land and kind of exactly what you were talking about. Basically in the last issue, um, I did this long interview with this, probably on any given day, my favorite LA writer. It's a man named John Reshi. He's a gay Mexican-American author who was writing in the early 60s. His kind of seminal work, although there's many other ones that I think are really excellent, is called City of Night. If you haven't read it, I cannot recommend a book more. For lack of a better phrase, it's like on the road, but about gay hustling. It's so brilliant and so poetic. And he writes about issues that have like, so much relevance in the modern world. And he was writing about 60 years ago. He's still alive. And I'm very grateful to have kind of become, got to become friends with him after interviewing him. And he lives in the Valley and he's brilliant. Anyways, but 
I had never heard of his work because, you know, LA authors just typically are kind of under-celebrated. You know, the New York authors have always got the attention. Even the San Francisco authors have always got attention. LA sort of always been considered this kind of cultural backwater. And, you know, about 10 years ago, I want to say 12 years ago, I was doing a story for the LA Times. For, it was Sprint. And I'm so LA to the core, I really love The Doors, which is a very embarrassing thing for many people to say, but I will defend it and I have and people don't agree. But I was interviewing Ray Manzarek when he was still alive, and he was he's even more long-winded than me, and he was going off on these like sonorous, beautiful tangents, and he was talking about John Reshi's City of Night. That's a line from L.A. Woman. And uh, I filed it away in the back of my head. I was like, oh, you should read the City of Night book. And I also am obsessed with like weird old print magazines, and there's a magazine called the Evergreen Review that was really popular in the... I don't know how popular it was, but the Evergreen Review is like the greatest... They have new Evergreen Reviews? Yeah. Well... I'm talking about the 60s and 50s ones. These are fire. Highly recommended. But I, I should check out the new stuff. But um, I was stumbling across it, and they had the first chapter of City of Night in there. And it was, it was an excerpt. And actually, before he got his book deal, he was excerpted in the Evergreen Review. And I just, I bought it for something else. You know, it's some other writer in it. And I started reading it, and I was like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever read in my life. And then I bought the book just because of this random serendipitous stumble on it in a magazine I bought in a used bookstore somewhere. And um, I ended up getting to you know, interview him a couple of times and write about him and not proselytize him evangelically. But it couldn't have happened without that. The internet, obviously, it's great. You can Google stuff. And I found like amazing stories where you just Google. But just the depth, the richness, and, and the magic. You know, we were talking about Raymond Chandler. And he always said, like, all art is magic. That would be, I think, a bad phrase if it wasn't for Raymond Chandler. But he's so hard-boiled. You're like, yeah. And I think there is a magic, and I think the world is kind of dedicated to snuffing out all magic in existence, and I think print is one of those few things that kind of offers the ability to kind of find this magic in a world where it's devoid of it. Well, the only thing I was going to say to add is there's a really wonderful line from Lisa Teasley in the What is LA Print Quarterly that uses the labyrinth, walking a labyrinth, as a kind of metaphor for the city. And I think there's something in there about print and encounters as well. But I would really love to hear from anyone here. Just thoughts, questions. What do you guys want to talk about? Hello, thanks for being here and everything. You guys are saying really great stuff. I love to hear it. I really like what you had to say about like how like art is magic and there's something magical about print specifically. It doesn't even think about this random time I was reading LA Weekly and there was like something about events at like the Upright Citizens Brigade and I was like, oh my God, I'm actually free. And like that wouldn't have happened if I just didn't randomly pick this up in a laundromat type of thing. I was like, oh my God, I love my city. So you're so right. And I just want to say thank you for being here and just like affirming that. That's, it's wonderful. Thank you. That's so cool. I really liked when you guys used the word serendipity a lot because it's my favorite word. And it (laughs) definitely correlates with print. But as a self-publisher myself, I'm always curious to know how you have your relationship with the internet and how you find promotion and a following, let's say on Instagram, without losing your initial ethos and sticking to that gut feeling of like anti-scroll, but also (laughs) having to succumb to that evil. We had an interview in our What is LA issue between two poets. One was Rachel Rabbit White, one was Rosie Stockton, and Rachel Rabbit White accused anyone for being offline of, of being, it's a class-based decision that they're like rich enough to be able to stay offline and not have to promote their works. So I was like, oh my God, I have to get an Instagram so people don't think I'm bougie. <laughs> but then like I got back online and I was like, okay, this is fun, but I missed when it was like just me and my friends hanging out online. And I do think they're as a writer, and this is really common in LA, weirdly, we can still be hard to find and just like write beautiful things and like live our lives. And like, we don't really have to do the like branding thing. And I think one of the things I really liked about putting together this panel is I feel like y'all are very much like on and off online in a really authentic way. That's not like, yeah, super obnoxious. You're just like, I have this really good idea. Do you guys want to hear it? Also, I'm really bad at Twitter. Um, it's sort of a devil's deal. It's like you have to know going in it's a devil's deal. I think you have to try to be like as honest as you can and not feel that pressure. Like I kind of always set a rule to myself. It's like if you're trying to force a tweet, just don't tweet it like when in doubt. I mean, Instagram is difficult too because it, it is like it's one of those things where it's like I see this all the time where it's like our magazine 
if I wasn't online, there'd absolutely be like, there'd be no way to sell it. Like we started this boycott. Twitter was the most valuable tool like ever. And like, I met Evan, my partner in the magazine through Twitter. It wouldn't have happened otherwise. And like all these like writers that I'd never even known, we all kind of came together. So I think you have to just understand that it's a tool and not like, it, it's like one component. It's like an appetizer. It's not the main course. Like <laughs> your, your work has to be paramount. I mean, it's like, Unfortunately, I'm not a fan of Norman Mailer, but we are living in the world of advertisements for myself and everyone is doing advertisements for themselves. And um, I think you have to be realistic about that and understand that like, I would also argue there's choices. I think people, I would disagree with Rachel Rabbit White, actually. I think you don't have to be on any of these things. Thomas Pynchon never did. There are people, I mean, my favorite musicians are like Mad Lib and Burial and these people that are semi-anonymous. You just have to be better. Like I am not at that. But if I ever got, I'd be like, I always think of this, uh, there's this rapper named Riff Raff. He's kind of kind of goofy guy, but he's like, I just want to blow up and act like I don't know nobody. And I think about that a lot because if you do get to that point where you do blow up, you can kind of vanish. And that's difficult. And I think that Kendrick Lamar is a perfect example, right? The Haitian rapper who's always wearing the mask. Yeah, yeah. Makami. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, no one knows what he looks like. And actually, Paul interviewed Makami, but Makami was like, I couldn't find a photo of you. Yeah. And like, yeah. and he was, you know, that's and, like, and that's why yeah. he liked Paul. Yeah. And yeah, I think there's, don't be afraid to have a certain distance between yourself because I think people, when you give up too much, Kendrick, I think, has done a really good job of kind of distancing himself. He doesn't really tweet. He doesn't really use Instagram. He tries to put the focus on his art, whether it's good or bad. There's plenty of things that you could say about it, but I have a lot of admiration for that, and I think it is possible. It's just more difficult, and once you get to that point, then you can kind of pull back, too. I do want to say, I think most of my students and I think young people don't it doesn't feel like you can exist as a creative in the world and not be online. I don't feel like I can totally get off Twitter. I do get off Twitter when I can. <laughs> and it's very much self-care. Like, let's rest so that we can fight another day. But it's different to be a woman of color online, especially if you do things like talk about economics in public. <laughs> so you do have to draw boundaries, get off when you need to, and be intentional. How am I going to use this tool until I blow up and I'm Kendrick Lamar? And then I can make really intentional choices about it. I really like this John Rishi interview. And there's a great line in it we could all turn to right now that my cousin Sarah, who's sitting over there, sent me a screenshot of, which is where you ask him what his least favorite trait in people is. And he says, humility. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's so good. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> Which is like narcissism is like the least understood character trait of humans right now, right? Yeah. Uh, the other thing I would just add real quick is um, I think the internet is basically a tool to drive everybody insane, especially social media. <laughs> like you will go insane. And so the only way that I've been able to kind of like navigate through that world is like by taking like breaks and like finding kind of whatever your chosen practice of self-care is. It's like essential to kind of doing it because otherwise, like if you don't have one, everyone will go crazy. Yeah. Get yourself a Maya. We have a Maya who does all of our social media for us. <laughs> Everyone needs a Maya. Okay, questions. What else should we talk about? Hi. I'm really happy to be here. I just want to say that. I'm, I'm so glad I found you guys on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So um, actually, in my comment, I just want to say that I'm really happy. Uh, it was mentioned the bullet journal. And I like that you mentioned that it was a digital dictator. Because that's kind of how I do my self-care to take a break from all the the digital, like Twitter and Instagram to just kind of like turn it up, take out my journal. I had the same brand that you have. I love that. Archer and Olive. Absolutely. <laughs> Woman owned. <laughs> that's right. So I really like that term, like digital dictator. And I never saw it that way. And um, I think journaling has also been picked up a lot. And I think encouraging people to write more. Just wanted to mention that. Like, yeah. Really my yeah. I also meditate, and I'm also just recently <laughs> became a certified mindfulness. I find this wow. funny. A certified mindfulness instructor with Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, who I mention whenever I can. She's an amazing author, activist, writer. And that I think the internet is a tool to drive us crazy, and I don't think I would be sane without that practice. And that connects to the... So, you know, self-care, one of the teachers that I like, he says, self-care is not self-indulgence. It's not the same thing. <laughs> it's not what Audre Lorde was talking about. But I think it's important sometimes to talk out loud about, yeah, I need my bullet journal, man. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. <laughs>
Yeah. Shout out to all of our diaries. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. I love that. Is this why you guys carry incense at the land? Don't you have the land incense? I just have that, you know, hippie, like Topanga Canyon. Don't like, I'm like one step <laughs> away at all times from getting a crystal collection. I'm trying not to, but like at any what? given moment. What's stopping you? Yeah. Come on now. <laughs> I don't want to totally give into being a cliche just yet. I'm waiting until my old age when it'll be like, oh, you have like the Gandalf thing and you're like, you have crystals in there. And I'm like, all right, that's better. <laughs> Sometimes I say that to East Coast friends. I say, the hippies were right about everything. And it really gets them. They're like, what? No, no, that's why I tell about the doors. Like my favorite thing to troll East Coasters is talk about Sublime. They get really angry, <laughs> and like it's uh, anyways. I couldn't go panel without talking about Sublime. Sorry. So is the LA Weekly just completely gone now? Because I know it was sort of on life support for a while. It's just dead. It's just gone. Like they have like a you have to find it. It's like a treasure hunt where you can't really find it. It's like the Nathan for you where they take you up to the top of the mountain. You have to keep on walking and walking to get a rebate. It's like that. I saw one in the wild, which is amazing. It's like 12 pages and it's like basically like a penny saver and it's like all like press releases. It's sad because like actually I think they're like targeting, well, they're targeting like kind of clueless big corporations, which I have no problem with in general, but they also target, you know, kind of like immigrant small businesses for like ads that don't understand that this is not the real LA Weekly. You know, I was really worried when I first started the boycott that I was wrong, that they were like actually good people. And I was just being totally melodramatic, which I'm prone to do, but they are in fact the worst people. It's it's an embarrassment to journalism and like it does exist, but um, you know, hopefully one day they will go down. So earlier in the panel, you said the phrase, the political economy of bullet journals. And I would really love for you to elaborate on that because so much of the time, I feel like everything that I've ever heard about bullet journals has been that they're grounding, they're a step away, they're like quiet with yourself, they're mindful, they're meditative. And so to hear you say the phrase political economy of bullet journals is very like, oh, there's more to this than just journaling. So I'd love to yeah. hear your thoughts on that. So bullet journals were created by a guy who, he talks about his own mental health, but he also talks them as an efficiency product, right? He says, you need to be more efficient. And in the opening of the book that he's written about it, he lists statistics about worker productivity in the US economy and then blames workers, says the internet has made us less productive and it's our fault and we need to do digital detox in order to make ourselves more efficient workers. So I disagree with that political economic assessment. We could have a whole conversation about what it really means that productivity hasn't gone up with the increase in economic activity. We could talk about the pandemic, but I think most people understand that the reasons that the economy is having trouble have nothing to do with whether or not we are productive workers, right? So I was looking at bullet journaling and there, there are all kinds of different subcultures within bullet journals. There are evangelical Christian who are very much about efficiency and internalizing efficiency, but there are also a lot of mindful subgroups, people who are in it for the mindfulness. And I found one, an influencer, that's what you call them, right? Who is an anti-capitalist, who wrote an anti-capitalist novel, and talks explicitly about how she learned to use her bullet journal to be an independent person. She didn't want an office job to run her life effectively and to be efficient for herself to make enough money to live and to continue to do her activist work. And she has a, oh, I'm not gonna remember the tagline, but it's like, it's not the things we produce, it's the class consciousness we raise. <laughs> and that was her take on bullet journaling. So that's what the article is about, is thinking about what it means to internalize capitalist pressure to be efficient and how that relates to something more like being efficient for yourself, right? I want to spend less time on Twitter at all times. No matter how little I spend, I want to spend less. But I do feel like I need to stay connected to some groups of people that I can really only do through social media. So how do I figure out what I'm doing in my day? How do I make intentional choices about my time? but specifically to raise class consciousness and not to be a more efficient worker for my boss. <laughs> that was what it came down to. Jumping off of what you said about productivity, there was a Twitter thread. Twitter's good for something. <laughs> that was, it was about the history of the phrase, people just don't want to work anymore. Yeah, people don't want to work anymore. That was really good. <laughs> Yay, okay. Well, if you didn't see it, it was taking article headlines and like clips from articles that date from anywhere from probably yesterday to back to like the 1890s, where people were using this phrase of people just don't want to work anymore. Every which generation. Is, yeah, <laughs> which is to say that, I don't know, I think there's a lot there in terms of 
why don't people want to work for you, author of this article? <laughs> How are we being exploitative to workers despite increasing productivity and increasing sort of working hours on average overall, especially especially actually during the pandemic? So yeah, productivity for productivity home. is yeah, a very political sort of topic. Yeah. But yay, Twitter, I guess. Actually, one of the things I really like about print magazines is how inefficient they are. Because yeah. they're just like incredibly expensive. Paper's really expensive. They have to be like shipped from all over. You know, it's like it's really not a money-making tool. Yeah, it's which super is related slow. related to the <laughs> questions of serendipity and yeah. Yeah. who made the front page and yeah. Well, it's also like anything that appears in print is not by accident at all. Like that content or that art was very much loved and that person wanted to sort of share it in this medium. It happens very intentionally. So lots of you might find it by accident. Yeah, Yeah. I'd add real quick, like one of the worst things that ever happened was when people could figure out like how popular an article was, right? Like where it's like back (laughs) when you had like an alt weekly or a newspaper, you're like, oh, I think it's like a good idea. Like maybe people like it. And like now it's like it can be quantified so specifically. So then people like whether it's conscious or unconscious, and I think quite often it is unconscious, people naturally gravitate towards what the kind of this tyranny of the masses type thing. And I think there's something really, I don't know, like I think there's something beautiful in being a cult classic, not a bestseller. Like to me, those are my favorite people. So or like I think about like the underground, right? And like everyone like everyone is like, so, oh, I I don't want to be underground. I want to be, it's like, it's, you sacrifice something to be the biggest thing in the world. Like there's almost always something that you have to compromise in some way. And like, to me, like, again, no disrespect to anyone that wants that. I think some people are really just good. Naturally, that's how they go. But there's something really beautiful. I think people that can retain a spirit of purity. And I think print kind of allows that spirit of purity just because you're not necessarily selling on a click-based model. You're just selling it on like it hopefully being good. I just want to share something. Sometimes the the universe aligns things in such a way that is like, oh my gosh, what a coincidence. But I went to the Natural History Museum yesterday with my husband just to remember when we took our little kids there. They're all gone now. There is an exhibit called Becoming Los Angeles. That's the name of the exhibit. I'm originally from Rio, Brazil, but I've been living here in Mission Viejo. Yeah, Brasileira. <laughs> and I've been living here for almost 15 years now. I was looking at this exhibit. I've been living here for 15 years. I've helped my three sons with projects about the history of Southern California, the history of California. And I did not know half of the things that were there in that exhibit called Becoming Los Angeles. And I was so sad about that. And so, like, um, what is it that is happening? I don't know if I'm explaining well. Like, I'm just so in love with the history of L.A. and the resilience of the city. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, in the first thing, my son got into UCLA. And, oh, how come he didn't get into NYU? Otherwise, I could go to New York and blah, blah, blah. Because I never felt anything towards L.A. I'm here because my husband was transferred here. And I live in Southern California. And I never felt this. Like you're saying, I never fell in love with L.A. until I went to that exhibit. That's what I wanted to say. So, And then I'm here listening to you guys just confirming everything that I saw and how the city was from the beginning with the European descent, but in the indigenous, the Grabilenos that were here before, and then, you know, the African descent and so much struggle for everything. Like... You know, and Charles Chaplin trying to create a movie with the independent for the artists and heroes from the African-American community. If you haven't seen this exhibit, if you, I think it's worth it. I was fascinated by the way they told the story of the city through these personalities that were not in the history books, unfortunately. And then I came today and this book has nothing to do with the exhibit. You know, it's just, it called my attention. I talked to the publishers and no, this guy, he writes about what is LA from, an, you know, he's lived here all his life, all those things. So I bought it just to, so interested that I am. So congratulations on this. And I think this is a, 
for me, this is a question to ask, right? How can we get the story out there of how beautiful and resilient this city is since from the beginning? Just one thing, for instance, I didn't know that when the missions were dismantled, for instance, and a lot of indigenous women and uh, African from African descent that had property under the when the United States took over, they lost. I did not know that. They lost their titles for everything. So suddenly they had nothing and they didn't give up. They stayed in Los Angeles and tried to build that. So there's many, many venues, but congratulations and thank God for art to bring the story in a beautiful way. Yeah. Yeah. That is a great place to end. Thank you. And it reminds me of, you're very quotable, actually, Michelle. Something you said in an interview once that, like, what does it mean to be from a, a city that refuses to reckon with its own history or refuses to um, handle, refuses to handle its own history? And um, I think that's kind of like what we're doing now. We get to, like, make the history. And each time we do something like Lit Lit or put out, like, a new issue of a magazine, print magazine that we give out for free, we're kind of, like, writing the new collective autobiography and history of L.A., in the present. So I just want to thank first my panelists, Jeff, Shessa, Michelle. I wanted to double thank Shessa for, again, for making all the lit lit propaganda. You really are the mental manual divide. It's so beautiful to hear you speak and you're such a creative person as well. Thank you so much. Thank you all. That was a special installment of the LARB Radio Hour featuring Chloe Watlington, Michelle Chihara, Jeff Weiss, Chessa Garbett on the love of print from this summer's Lit Lit Fair at Hauser and Wirth. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.